Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Greetings, comrades. Latvians are normally very self-conscious folk. We love our privacy here, and I'm a bit of a weirdo for doing a podcast and telling the stories of the people. You see, the people whom I ask about this, they often need to be persuaded to talk about this issue, because some of them can't understand why would some foreigner would even need to or want to hear anything about their private life. We don't like people poking around in our lives. But, and this surprised me, it wasn't always so. While researching for this episode, I came upon tons of information stating that Latvians were one of the more open societies in the 20s and the 30s. So, what happened? Well, Soviet totalitarianism happened. Totalitarianism in the sense that the government actively tried to control everyday aspects of life. And this is interesting, because I obviously follow the news about various events in other countries, So, listen close. Maybe you'll notice something similar, and it might make you think a bit differently. Orson Welles, he was a smart man, you know. Shame that he didn't write any fiction, but his documentary work is excellent. I'll start with discussing a nice paper here. It's a brand new one too, about a month old. Control and Surveillance of the Private Life in the Latvian SSR, 1944-1953, to Using the Repressive Agencies of the State. It's written by Ineta Lipsha, PhD in History, from the Latvian SSR KGB Scientifical Research Committee. It's my main source when talking about the marriage institution of the USSR. You see, just after World War II, where the Soviet Union suffered a staggering amount of casualties, uh, the estimates vary from starting with 20 million and up to 40 million people dead, directly or indirectly as a result of this war, according to various sources. So due to these casualties... Stalin simply couldn't rely on mass shootings and starvations anymore. Sure, there were still mass deportations to remove the disloyal elements from the society, like the ones in 1949 that we mentioned in the previous episode, but massive terror as a routine way of doing things had to be abandoned. This meant that a new way of population control was needed, because, oh my, we really can't allow the people to do things on their own now, can we? So, the big brother decided that the voluntary submission to the state was necessary. 
and one of the means of instituting such submission was the enforcement of and propaganda about this so-called communist morale, which basically meant that people were supposed to put their interests below those of the state. They have to work hard and live a proper private life in stable families. Any divergence from this was treated as a direct assault on state authority. Cheat on your wife today, cheat your government tomorrow. If you remember the Olympic Burger episode, I quoted a joke there. <clears throat> he who wears Adidas will sell his country tomorrow. That joke, by the way, is a direct result of this mentality, as you can see. There was a strict cultivation of a sense that the collective interests and the influence of those collective interests and the influence of the collective is just crucial when raising a good individual. Propaganda about the social roots of vices was widespread. The rotting Western influences counterpositioned against the highly virtuous builder of communism. Like one of my favorite Russian political philosophers, late Alexander Piatigorsky, would say, there was a heavy politicization of the private sphere. Family, children, love, everyday life. They all had become political terms. They had become the battleground for the state to influence the population in. I highly recommend Piatigorsky's What is Political Philosophy lectures book, by the way. It's really amazing and gives you a lot of new perspectives. So, the communist state virtually imposed marriage when in 1944 they made divorce procedures very complicated. This was done because of the idea that under communism family behavior should be perfect. This idea was enforced not only during the Stalinist period, but also in the later Soviet periods. The state imposed several private illusions on the citizens. For the state, all relationships were quote-unquote normal, non-conflicting. The state effectively imposed on the population their own vision of what the Soviet society should be like, to the extent that they were willing to conceal quote-unquote abnormal sexual behaviors. At the same time, this was problematic to the people at the time, because everyone was also expected to work really, really hard. Previously, at least in Latvia, most households were traditionally single income. In Soviet era, that changed forcibly, and obviously it's hard for people who are used to single-income households where one parent spends time at home and takes care of kids to just suddenly shift to being able to see your children only after work. It seems normal now, but at that time it was a culture shock. Also, remember that kindergartens and schools and everything, they all were required to teach this communist morale, this importance of collectivism in everyday life. Also, note that unlike today, when we're all equal, but we celebrate diversity and stuff like that, this was about making everyone the exactly same. Remember that there was no place for various national cultures in the USSR until the late 80s. It was just this monolithic block of Sovietness, and to be fair, Russianness. Because, quoting Orville again, some animals are more equal than others. The Soviet system encouraged people to tell the party about private conflicts, either their own or the ones they detected in others. These complaints were then used by the party to intervene in the private life of people, especially in their personal relationships. The documents of the Latvian Communist Party show that these complaints were then sent to the KGB, who would ultimately be the ones making decisions. There were, of course, also pleas of family members to the authorities to lessen the punishment and to return the people from exile, and not only denunciations. But, you know, the replies to such requests are quite chilling. Here's one. This is a reply from the KGB to a person sending a plea. <clears throat> Quote, I inform you that Zirnis Laiva Martinovna, as a daughter of a kulak, 
had been sent out from Latvian SSR territory correctly and the plea for her return has been cancelled. You could always accuse someone of improper behavior for personal or political reasons. These reports would effectively discredit your enemies. You could also use accusations to broadcast your own political purity in what could be called political banditism. If you were accusing someone, you would give all the possible information, names, places, times, which was carefully recorded by the party. These thorough documents can now be used to research any number of topics on the Latvian totalitarian past, and I'm about to do so in future episodes. If you accused any political figure of improper sexual behavior, his problem, i.e. his sexuality, would be then discussed by the party, effectively fusing personal and political matters. For example, this person would be asked to publicly explain his actions and to, quote, solve them, end quote. Having sex with someone without being married, cohabitation, as the document says, was nothing less than pure moral decay, and punishment could go as far as being excluded from the party. The lesson here was that any member of the Communist Party had to live under a registered marriage and never participate in gender conflicts. But marriage did not make you bulletproof. If your spouse had a politically questionable past, you could also be punished, this time for being ignorant of communist morality. In this case, you were ordered to get a divorce. If you didn't, you would be excluded from the party and would also lose your job and possibly any chances of getting another job, or worse. However, this policing of private life was not reserved just for the members of the party. All inhabitants of Soviet Latvia had to live with this, where marriage had to be maintained or cancelled for political reasons, regardless of personal preferences. This forced dissolution of marriage was worse for the, quote, politically problematic, end quote, people, especially convicts or deportees, whose spouses were forced to get a divorce because the Soviet authorities made their lives extremely complicated while they remained married to this problematic person. Here's a KGB response for a plea from person's relatives to cancel his deportation to Siberia, just for not divorcing his wife fast enough. Quote, We inform you that Shumanis Artur Sjenovich, as a husband of a woman convicted of supporting banditism, which is she probably supported national partisans, I presume, has been correctly deported from Latvian SSR, as he formed divorce documents only after the arrest of his wife. Thus, the plea for his return has been rejected. As you can see, staying loyal to your wife was a virtue only in so far as both of the partners were both loyal to the government. People were even expected to report any arguments in the family to their party officials. And here, we return to an earlier episode again to the famous tale of Pavlik Marozov, a 15-year-old hero of the Soviet Union who did his duty as a completely loyal Soviet citizen and reported his parents for not giving all of their weed to the state but keeping it to themselves as to not to starve. Marozov was then lynched by the villagers as the KGB took his parents away and later made a hero of the USSR. And remember, you have to leave your kids at a kindergarten where there is a nice man from KGB overseeing the process of education while both parents are away at work. And no, 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 you can't leave your kids to their grandparents or something. Kindergarten is mandatory, comrades. Also, remember that quite a lot of marriages for the people in the higher echelons of power were prearranged for the same political party reasons to advance career and the like. Well, of course, this wasn't mentioned officially, but I have a lot of reports of people who admit that indeed it was so. While the Soviet party 
tried to sustain the illusion that all the citizens were happily married or divorced, as happiness is mandatory, research shows that, on the contrary, there were many conflicts in private life, and in everyday life it was impossible to hide all the expressions of sexuality. Also, some people just didn't want to get married. If you were just living together with a partner without marriage, then you could get into trouble for that as well. Because of our glorious and famous saying by Brezhnev, or we don't have sex, it was meant to express that there was only procreation in the USSR. Forever. And everyone's happy. Just as mandated. There are some very interesting documents about this enforcing of this communist morale, which might be a bit shocking to you today that I've come across. Firstly, I'll note that there was no such term as private life in the USSR. It was the so-called private life. In a brochure published in Moscow in 1948, meant for propagandists, it is said that, quote, relationships between sexes isn't just a personal matter, end quote. And that this so-called private life demands that everyone understands their duties toward the family and the state. And... A loose lifestyle, as practiced by capitalists, causes widespread disgust and hatred in our society. And this one, <laughs> this one's the best. Animalistic desires cannot be more valuable to the person than their duty to their fellow man and the communist morale. Sexuality and proper sexual behavior, for communistic morale goals, was also used as an argument to combat religion. Yes, folks, religion. A KGB member, commanded to the Latvian SSR Higher Council, argued against the loosening of anti-religious laws and prohibition of some religious activities, stating that, if such a thing would be allowed, it would lead to, quote, sexual liberation and sexual abuse of children, end quote. A document from our archives says that, quote, Vyselov from KGB stated that if we'll allow the religious people to assemble and perform services, we'll never be able to prove that they've assembled just because to sexually abuse children and torture them. Now isn't this nice? Just remember about this the next time when someone tries to yell that some broad group is approving children without presenting any evidence. Well, on the plus side of these laws, and there is a tiny plus side, I guess it might be really big actually, but there is one. All this thing really kickstarted gender equality here. When among the top-rated countries on that scale, we've got a lot of women in business and politics with strong ambitions and everything. Most of my bosses have been women. Also, they mainly don't like radical feminism here. You know, the one that yells that all men are potential rapists and such. I don't know about your country, wherever you might be listening from, but over here, the genders get quite along quite fine, I think. Because, honestly, everyone was oppressed equally. And, you know, love and close relationships bloom if you know that if you'll be a terrible person to your other half, they'll report you to the KGB and you'll get in serious trouble. So even if you don't appreciate your partner that much, be nice, just in case. Then again, I wish you all are living in a happy, nice relationship everywhere, wherever you might live. With that, we'll get straight to the info part. Hey, hey, Eastern Border listeners. This is Daniel Doughty from the Lesser Bonapartes podcast. Uh, Alice is about 250 kilometers away right now, so I decided to take advantage of that fact and horn in on the airwaves here because there is some very exciting news to tell you all about. After two years over at Lesser Bonapartes, I've decided to hang up my spurs and go into podcast retirement, but uh, our show is not ending over there because your favorite and mine, Christoph Andresons, 
has decided to come on board and be the new co-host over at Lesser Bonaparte's. Now, I'm telling all of you Eastern Border listeners about this to reassure you that Eastern Border will stay on schedule. It is not ending. Uh, Christophs is not uh, is not canceling Eastern Border in order to participate in Lesser Bonaparte's. He's just taking it all on. Um, so that's good news for both you and I, because I am an avid Eastern Border listener, and I am uh, thrilled that Christophs will be continuing as though nothing had happened at all. This should be absolutely terrific. Um... Let's see. Uh, now's the time when uh, I guess Christoph probably says something or Alice says something about, uh, I don't know, social media stuff. You guys know all about that. You know what to do. Use your Google and your your, your Skypes and your whatnots and go find it out. Uh, if you love the show, get in contact with the show. Tell them that you love it. Um, also, and most importantly, iTunes reviews. I'm sure you guys all recognize, but it never hurts to be reminded that an iTunes review is just a little bit out of your day. But it makes a big difference to uh, where your shows end up on the podcast charts there on iTunes. So if you do love the show, like we love Eastern Border, head over to iTunes and leave a review. And honestly, actually, uh, while you're leaving a review, check out uh, coming up on Lesser Bonaparte's. Christops will be on board, so come on over and take a listen to that fantastic show. Uh, even though I am retiring, I am still going to be a Lesser Bonaparte's mega fan, and I hope you will be too. And as long as you're checking out new shows... Uh, we have here on the Dark Myths Podcast Collective, our podcast of the month is Pete's Paranormal Chronicles. Uh, and this is a pretty unique one. It is a podcast done in mockumentary style about a private detective who's investigating paranormal activity in a, uh, a very humorous manner, we might say. There's a lot of uh, really cool like homemade Foley stuff, uh, a lot of great voice acting, and it's a, it's a very funny project. Um, any of you people out there who are super serious, of course, may not like it. But, hey, if you think radio plays are neat, if uh, you want to listen to something that has a lot of cool jokes and has a cool B-movie feel, please check out Pete's Paranormal Chronicles. And with that, I think I'll turn everything back over to uh, the uh, people over uh, there at Eastern Border, your actual uh, hosts. But uh, thanks for letting me drop by, and uh, I hope Alice doesn't kill me for taking over airwaves like this. Uh, see y'all later. And welcome back to the show, comrades. You all know that this is a people thing. Well, and as this theme is very strong as my show, I decided to ask some help from a friend of mine. Her name is Ksenia Adrianovna, and she runs a scientific food blog dedicated to debunking a lot of myths about what we eat. The blog's in Latvian, although I've recommended that she'd write it in English as well. So, maybe someday. Anyhow, she asked her readers to share their stories about the everyday life, mostly focusing on the food and the consumer goods part. I had decided to make that a part of this show as well, and as I said in the beginning, I often have to persuade people to give me their stories. But, surprisingly, the response this time was overwhelmingly large. It also was quality stuff that I got from the people. The stories have been translated, and this time, instead of involving them in a narrative story, I want to go over them and comment on the things that I find interesting in those stories. Because there's just so much material and I find it amazing. So, let's just get to it. Number 1. I was a little kid and a teenager during the Andropov-Chernenko-Gorbachev era, in one of the USSR's main Baltic military bases, 
Lia Pai. Of course, I wasn't buying the food myself, but I still clearly remember the assortment. The assortment can be described with a single word. Chicken. I don't quite remember where the chickens came from during the Soviet time, but it was the only one more or less available meat product. They were always quite bluish in the store. My parents prepared them in all sorts of ways, steamed, baked in soups and what not else. I remember my mom cooking a very thick chicken broth, which was then either diluted with water or added to vegetables, potatoes, carrots, cabbage, sometimes even tomatoes, to make them fattier. During the season in Liepaja, another delicacy was widely available for democratic prices. Cod. At that time they were huge, some 10 kilos, very heavy. You can't find such in the Baltic Sea anymore because of overfishing, and if you could they would be unreasonably expensive. At one point came the Great Crisis. I don't really remember what the reason was. Either the USSR completely exhausted itself, or Liepai was turned into a closed military city, and because of this status the food supply significantly worsened. The stores were completely empty. To fill up the shelves and showcases, they were stocked with large quantities of milk and kefir packs, as well as 5 kilo cans of salted herring, which was another staple grocery product of the Latvian SSR. Once, slinking around the army's quarters fences, hoping to find some used cartridges, I wandered into the army's town store, where a fantastic view greeted me. The room might have been some 10 meters long, with a just-as-long three-level shelf along the wall. Packs of kefir were beautifully stacked on all three levels, and not a single other product was in the store. I haven't been able to forget that sight. And yet, we never complained about food. I was actively engaged in sports. Besides that, I was a growing teenager. I grew to being two meters tall, so you can imagine what kind of an appetite such a glutton has. And nothing. I'm almost 40 now, and I haven't had any digestive tract problems or disorders that might be linked to malnutrition in childhood. As I mentioned, the assortment was uniform. Chicken, chicken, and chicken again. In various steamed dishes, casseroles, crockets, and soups. We had bread, butter, cheese, and, if you got lucky, sausage. Mainly boiled doctor's sausage. There were three spices for the main dishes. Salt, black pepper, and bay leaves. I don't remember any others. We had a lot of different salads with sour cream. You could buy these in the market from the allotment garden owners and so-called farmers. Radishes, lettuce, cabbages, carrots. For the children, my sister and I, oatmeal porridge and semolina in a pudding were often made. These I still like a lot. And they probably covered a significant part of a growing boy's needs. Finally, a lot of moralizing note. From this Soviet childhood, I've learned that what matters is only the quality of the food, and that there's plenty of it. Grimacing and whining is a simple sign of weakness, doesn't say anything good about the person. Well, that was the first letter that I received, and it was extremely interesting. First off, this guy, who I won't name, because he asked me not to, he works in the Latvian analog of IRS. So, I guess he was was kind of uh, well-fed at this time. About the sudden crisis, yeah, I guess you know about that already when we're speaking about people his age. It must have been the the very end of Brezhnev's era, like he said when Chernyenko came, when the stagnation was, was really, really felt. 
about the old kefir store. Yeah, I've heard such stories from other people as well, and we'll hear some in the future in this episode. But I think that would have been just a bit more likely in the Central Asian parts of the Soviet Union, the mainland Russia, in Siberia, or or maybe down there in Kazakhstan, or stuff like that. But over here in Latvia, yeah, that would have been a rare sight. Now, a nice, interesting comment about the Dr. Sausage that was mentioned in this story. Dr. Sausage technically had to contain 70% meat and 30% and 10% of, of, of fat and 20% of some sort of offal or something. I don't know. Uh, technically, there were some standards for this. I'm not that good at exactly knowing the percentages. But the trick is, like we can learn in the documents now, the Russian standard, the Soviet standard, it was uh, diff- it was named Latvian standard, Russian standard, Azerbaijani standard. It was all the same standard, just named for each and every republic. It contained these instructions about how much meat there should be in a sausage, but in brochures and informational materials given to cooks and people who worked in meat processing plants and those factories, there were actually instructions in them with what you could replace the meat in those sausages. So, for example, doctor's sausage was mostly ground-up bone mixed with uh, some some mechanically mechanically dismembered chicken or something like that. But, yeah, there was a huge list of, of other elements... <laughs> They were literally called elements at some point in the brochure, which stated that with what you could replace meat and still write in your daily accounts that, yes, this sausage contains, like, only meat. That's why some people complain that it tasted like cardboard, which it did. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't anything poisonous in there, but, you know, you have 50 kilos of meat for today's sausages in the factory... Maybe some two or three get actually put in the sausages because, hey, the the butchers also need to eat and the director of the company wants to have a fillet or something. You know, the usual. But yeah, uh, on to the second story then. And I'm sorry for being a bit uneasy about this because all I have in front of me are these printed out stories and there's a lot of them and I'm just picking picking the good ones out. I hope you won't mind this this bit more chaotic part after the first one. But, uh, yeah, the second one. My mom told me that her mother always saved all the best food for guests. She's deeply resentful for that to this day. When I was a little kid, from a very young age, I was fed with meat instead of baby porridge. My mom considered porridges to have a low nutritional value. And the night before any celebrations, a birthday, for example, family's women just came together and baked assorted pastries, tartlets, sponge cakes, fruit cakes, eclairs, and the tables were heavily lauded. Just three short stories from, from the same letter I got. Uh, the best food for guests, which the author's mom apparently hates. Yeah, that was a, that was a tradition that stayed strong here uh, up until the 90s, because we didn't have that much of food. But there's this rule of hospitality over here, that people try to be very nice to their guests, and also, the Soviet culture in general had this idea. Uh, there, is, there are these words, it's like not to be but to be, sort of more likely not to be but to appear. 
that's why you can sometimes even if you go to Russia or St. Petersburg or somewhere you you must have seen in the movies all those big fluffy coats that they have fur coats yeah you know the, the wife might have a fur coat but they might not be there, there might not be some such some quality food on the table that night even it's a part of the, that Soviet culture really and yeah it was quite custom to reserve the best food for your guests and and if you actually got those oranges in the large queue that you were waiting for, then you would save up those oranges and take them home and wait until you're and then just invite all the guests around while you still had those oranges. And about the baby porridges, yeah, you know, sauce had more regulations than baby porridges. And baby porridge was essentially um, a glob. It was glob of nom, as as the new meme people would state. But yeah, it was of even poorer quality than sausages now and then, and apparently they did taste like cardboard. I I have eaten such a porridge myself when I was a kid, but I obviously don't remember the taste, but my mom told me that I apparently hated it. What about those uh, baking pastries thing? Yeah, they were hard to get. Uh, cafes and places where you can buy all those pastries and baked, baked goods, they didn't have such a huge choice, and they were baked kind of poorly, industrially. Basically sloppy, as you would expect the Soviet people to do their jobs now and then. So yeah, it was a deep tradition to, to just bake your own goods all the time. And they were really excellent, because because grain products and flour which uh, and sour cream, they were in the kefir and dairy products, they were kind of easier to find than all the meats and, and the good vegetables and the fruit. So it was easier to make all sorts of cakes because you could access to the ingredients back then. Now, the third one, the third one's a joke, which is interesting, but it falls right in. It's very short, though. My family tends to say that when they asked each other what to get from the store, the answer was um, coffee, maybe a piece of sausage. As an ironic joke, because haha, of course, there's no such thing in the store. No, that's, that's a bit true. I mean, in those Bonnie stores with, with whom I sp- spoke about with, with Travis J. Doe in his Bohemian podcast, which I also, by the way, recommend. Travis does a bunch of various podcasts, and um, I'm, on, I'm on that show. I was on an episode talking about these Bonnie stores where you could buy quality goods for foreign money. But on average, yeah, at, at the moment of stagnation, at the beginning of Chernyenko era, even Brezhnev era, yeah, coffee... Wow, only the instant one, and only from India. Real, granulated, natural coffee was a very rare thing. And sausages, well, those doctor ones, which taste like cardboard, were out there somewhere, but even then rarely. But if you wanted a real kielbasa one or, or some something smoked, huh, yeah, it truly made for an ironic joke, really. So, number four. Once... During elementary school, I had the joy of not attending school one day, because my parents found out that the store will be receiving a delivery. Eggs, meat, and sour cream. All three of us had to go, because they were rationing all sales. Say, one kilo per vase, for example. We got into the queue at 7am, outside in winter. The store opened at 8am. This event took approximately four hours. That was around 1978. Soviet paradise. Yeah, the Q stories are quite quite popular. I remember my grandmother also standing in the queue. And like I said, the situation was like you walk down the street, you you see a queue, you have, you're just coming home from work or you're just going to work and you're like, nope, 
nope, it's a queue. I'm gonna stand there and I'm gonna buy what they give it to me. So, yeah, another one of those nice queue stories. Now, number five. Oh, I've got a few of those. I hope you won't mind that much. This one's a bit longer. Number five. Up until the beginning, mid-70s, it was okay-ish. True, to the countryside stores, fresh meat was delivered once a week, milk and dairy products twice, uh, fresh milk in bottles on order, strictly by list. But butter, coffee, candy, sausages, smoked meat, available mostly. Bread was the brick, bread, the grey, brick kind of bread, and white bread was in loaves. The Kluan bread, which is coarse rye and sweet sour tasting, was always available. It was produced by Riga Bread, and it was brought in from the capital. Exotic fruits, ice cream, and stuff like that weren't available in the countryside at all. Then, slowly the sausages started disappearing. Then butter. After that, the sour cream. I remember my study years, the 80s, when entire families lined up for sour cream in Riga. One jar per person was permitted, yet you had to take your own jars to buy sour cream, and they would just pour it in with you, because they didn't didn't provide their own jars or plastic containers. Plastic was considered western and really, really amazing. And soon after, coffee disappeared as well. And after that, USSR disappeared, eventually. Even though the majority will say how bad it was, and like I said, I'm, I'm quoting those uh, things sent to me and posted in the forums there, even though the majority will say how bad it was, we're all fed, we celebrated, tables were laden for graduations, and during the dry law, every second person brewed moonshine. Ha, told you guys. Figured how to get it crystal clear, and on wedding tables it was dyed with, comp- <laughs> dyed with compote and f- filled in lemonade jugs. Yeah, during the prohibition I spoke about this, but food coloring, food coloring to actually dye your moonshine to m- make it appear more legit... That's a favorite favorite story of everyone, I think, because you couldn't just show that you have moonshine. No, 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 you bought that one legally available bottle of, say, cheap brandy, then you, of course, used it or just powered in a jar somewhere and gave to your plumber or someone, and then you made a moonshine, but you had to make it look like it was something legit, because what if they come and check? And what if your, like, neighbors or friends, what if one of them or your acquaintances... What if one of them is the so-called stokach for the KGB and for the authorities? You kind of had to be careful, so the people just kind of used tea to color moonshine, and they used used food coloring, and like here, compote. That, that's the stuff that you... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month, or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Get when you put fruit like apples and something in water and make a syrup out of them. I feel the lemonade jugs, well, sometimes do. But yeah, for the most part, in such unofficial house parties, there might have been lemonade jugs. But if you wanted to appear to be really, really amazing, you would get an empty brandy bottle. You would kind of buy an empty brandy or cognac bottle bottle from, from some of the guys who had been to foreign countries. And they would fill it up with this tea-colored moonshine and tell everyone that it's the real thing, really. Uh, continuing on with this story... <clears throat> I've stood in queues, a very boring ordeal. I only like the colorful foil caps on dairy products. Soup selections offered no satisfaction. Uh, colorful foil caps on dairy products were th- were like they sold the milk in those tetra packs. Like, you know, the, the square packs they sell milk in today, the cartons. But um, in the Soviet Union, for some reason, they used the pyramid-shaped sort of triangles for milk. And they had this tinfoil cap on them, which you poked through and then you powered the milk in. And those apparently came in various colors. Carrying on, uh, my parents and I went to Shauli, which is in Lithuania, for doctor's sausage, the previously mentioned cardboard product, and sovietskaya. Ha! And then this is where the poster especially, especially notes v- with fat. We bought it in bunches like firewood, and they then baked it, uh, baked it at home with eggs, potatoes, and quickly ate it all so it wouldn't spoil, and then we went there again. Yeah, uh, you might notice that the famous doctor's sausage, which tasted like cardboard, and the sovetske with fat, because apparently a sausage with actual fat in it, having some actual good calories, it was was quite rare. What I'm surprised is that... the I'm surprised Lithuania, when Shaul is a city in Lithuania quite near the Latin border, they had these things, because all the reports from Lithuanians that I've heard is that the situation there was quite similar to what we had here. Anyways, I know that quite a few Lithuanians are listening to this show, and it would be really interesting, especially for the second episode, as it right now looks like, that we'll be going through these these stories, and next time we'll talk about uh, childhood toys, books, entertainment, and chess, but we're just going to stick to these stories this time. Um, yeah, if you guys from Lithuania, from Shaoli, or from any other ex-Soviet Republic would send me how it was like for you, because apparently it was a bit better in Shaoli at the 80s or something, I would be really glad to use this material, because this is proving to be really interesting to me. So, <clears throat> entertainment. Oh yeah, <laughs> this one's a bit about entertainment. Uh, from the same from the same post, by the way. Entertainment. Cinema. That was the main one. They brought in Italians. At the cinema Zemgala and the cinema Yalgala, the queue stretched down the down the way all the way from the stairs or on the street. I ran back home with tickets for everyone, and then in the evening the entire family went to watch Adriano Celentano. Yeah, Italian culture was really big in, in the Soviet Union, at least in these parts. For some unknown reason and I am currently trying to get a certain expert, which you might have heard of, but I won't reveal his name, though, to actually speak to me about this subject. When we grew older, during winter, we milled around the lobby in the cinema. There were warm, large radiators. 
because apparently it was cold on the street, and public heating and heating in buildings sometimes, okay, often broke down, so I can understand this one. We rode up to the 12th floor with elevators in each and every one of Yalgavas, and she's talking about uh, the city at this time, not the cinema. We rode up to the 12th floor with elevators in each and every one of Yalgavas high-rise buildings. There are a lot of things to remember. People were neither sad nor grumpy. They were as happy as children for the Kriya Kriya shampoo. Yeah, because uh, the Kriya Kriya shampoo, it's, it's a famous thing. I got given one for my 15th or 16th birthday as well as a gift to remind me how it was like. Because uh, the Kriya Kriya shampoo, it was completely black. At least I remember it as completely black. Or I might have been mistaken, but Kriya Kriya, basically Kra is uh, the sound that the, that the crows make. In uh, in Latvian, and Kriya Kriya was the shampoo which had a, had this crow on it, and it was extremely interesting to, to just uh, look at it the, these days. It was very basic, but you know it did the job. Oh yeah, and quality shampoos and children's products, huh? They were also a complete deficit, so people were really happy when they didn't have to wash their hair with just soap, or even better, there were these laundry soap which are popular still up until the early 2000s, because uh, a lot of people here didn't have washing machines, so people used to wash their laundry by hand. Uh, some people in the countryside still still do that, because not everyone has uh, running water in their homes. Some people still use wells, at least around here in these parts, in Lodza. Well, in, in the country part, not in the city itself, of course. So laundry soap was quite popular, and um, soap in general, and some all sorts of uh, these everyday chemistry products, they were considered a deficit, so yeah, when you got this actual children's shampoo, Kriya Kriya, which was branded as a crow thingy, which would be weird for you Americans, I presume, because uh, having a crow on your shampoo and that one being black, huh, that would be a bit scary. Anyways, finishing up this post. You can also turn it around, of course. There was a mockery, undignified living, maybe. But even right now, it all depends on your attitude and guts. She, uh, again, notes guts. Yeah, I guess uh, I have to kind of disagree here, because it sort of was mockery and undignified, but yeah, we're tough people, and I hope that uh, those who have listened to the show long enough know that we didn't really whine about what was going on, we're trying to be sneaky, crafty people who di- did everything themselves and tried to survive in this this uh, whole endeavor that was called the Soviet Union. It was quite hard for us, but hey, somehow we managed to pull through and... And I think that because of this, we have learned to do a lot of things for ourselves, which might be quite nice. And I'm sorry if I'm really putting you off guard somehow by reading all these stories, but this is the closest to first-hand accounts that you'll probably get about the Soviet Union, so I don't even want to alter those in any way or form. Okay, number six now. That the stores will throw out, uh, by throw out in this case, mean actually sell to people, deficit items was usually found out from the information leakage. Basically, you knew someone who knew someone who worked at the store, and they said, well, we've stolen quite enough, let's actually sell something. That's how it happened, because of all the corruption, of course. Usually, that happened after lunch breaks, and at the end of the month, when the stores rushed to reach the quota. Yeah, they had a quota on how much they actually have to sell, and you can just steal some products off, but there's a quota on, for example, how much of a cool sausage you have to sell, 
like actually sell and well you need to sell some of it uh, the store owners didn't really like it <clears throat> so at the time all grocery stores had a lunch break from 1 p.m to 2 p.m or from 2 p.m to 3 p.m even before the store closed for the lunch break <laughs> yeah imagine this it would be very weird for you for anyone to imagine that the store completely closes during the daytime because they all go to lunch break at the same time it's weird for our capitalist thinking at this moment even before the lunch break, a line started forming by the store's door. Some took their place in the queue and rushed off to return later. Others patiently stood and, quote, maintained order, unquote, in the line. Upon the opening, everyone showed up with entire families. Those whose family members were busy at the time could arrange for somebody to lend them a child. Because, obviously, if you're not going to stand in the queue and everything is per head, then you call up your colleagues and grab their kids just so you'd have more heads with whom you could buy more sausages. The usual purchase limit was however much they gave you. It wasn't common to buy a couple of grams or doctors or pork sausages. Which basically meant that if they needed to sell you a certain amount of meat, you couldn't just pick, I don't know half a kilo of a sausage they would give you the whole sausage and you could either take it or leave it because they have to get rid of it because it might get rotten soon and the buyer really doesn't care about that point he's gotten his cardboard tasting sausage finally and the store needs to get rid of it and they don't even care and they have quite a lot of it and the people in the queue oh they they'll buy all of it anyways and if if, if they suddenly for some reason don't buy it oh it's going to be terrible being a butcher was considered a very prestige profession it meant that, through connections and with a little bit of extra pay, you could get a very good piece of meat. In the store, meat was already divided into portions. A good lean piece of pork chop would definitely come with a piece of old fat bacon with skin. Okay, maybe not old per se, but definitely one that would be impossible to sell even during the times of shortage. And the author of the comment says this phenomena had a name, maybe someone remembers. Yeah, it was called Zaklad. Basically, you couldn't even buy a nice pork chop. You had to buy this pork chop, but it was packed in a, in a nice bag, together with some extremely low-quality meats that the store just couldn't sell, because nobody would, nobody would just buy them or use them. But they had to sell them, because that's what they got from the central the food distribution thing. And if they didn't sell them, they would get into trouble. So if you wanted to actually buy that good meat... Oh, you better pay a bit of extra. You buy this bag full with, I don't know, we don't care how much sausages are in there, that's enough for you, and you will buy that stuff as well, which is the terrible rotten one. And that happened everywhere. Because basically, if you wanted to get a, a good set of furniture, nicely made, because cool furniture was also all sent off to the officials in the army, if you wanted to buy a cool set of, I don't know, a, a cupboard or or one of those cool things that you put the television on with the mirror on the back or something... If you wanted to buy a cool set of furniture, you better buy some cheap, poorly made uh, tables or something like that with it. This happened mostly everywhere in, in all sorts of stores. Everything was just sold as, I don't know, a set of things. And it's kind of funny to think about a set of sausages or a set of meats, but mostly a lot of things were sold in these sets just to get rid of the lower quality things. Continue on. Because my grandmother was considered a hero mother in the Soviet Union, confirmed by an official document and a medal. During the 80s, my acquisitive mother managed to get a permission to shop in a USSR veterans grocery store. 
oh, this is the Borai store. This is the one where you could um, also pay for the foreign currency, or if you were a veteran of the war, or just a higher up of the nomenclature, just go in. Oh, and be- being a mother heroine meant that you had to have at least five children. So apparently they tried to take care of their people by that point on some level. Now, you could shop there in that store once a week. Continuing on, if I'm not mistaken, the grocery list had to be handed in beforehand. That store carried goods that weren't available in the other regular grocery stores. Approximately five types of sausage. That was considered uh, a lot, really, guys. Lime chocolate candy. Foreign-made juices. Mostly Finnish, Azerbaijani, uh, other of those nice friendly republics. Some, some Polish stuff, some Czech stuff. Bulgarian peas, beans, lecho. That's, lecho is like a vegetable stew salad thing, by the way. Fruits that weren't available in the regular stores. Actually, coffee. Normal, regular ground coffee. And even other things. But... There were quotas. We bought as much as we possibly we we bought as much as we possibly could, and almost everything was given out to our family members because we had a large family. Well, yeah, if you have five kids and you have relatives, weird. Carrying on, my biggest shock during the transitory years. Uh, this is how we call when the years dur- when the Soviet Union collapsed and when we switched to the market economy was the price jump on bread in 1991. I'll talk about this in the narrative episodes in the show later, but this is so that you can get a feel of it. I remember the exact year, because I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. A loaf of white bread cost 25 kopecks. Everywhere and always. Yeah, because obviously all prices were set. One day, there was no more bread in the store. Neither the next day, or the day after. The day after that, it appeared. And then I saw the price. I rubbed my eyes, looked again, and I thought I had something confused. It was 22 rubles. So, carrying on with number 7. The weirdest thing, though, was with stores being empty, holiday tables were laden with food. (laughs) Yeah, like mentioned previously, everyone were just counting on their knowledge about where to get stuff for free, everyone knew how to cook, they had their grandmas and grandpas in the countryside who would just pickle all the kind all kinds of things so yeah holiday tables were kind of okay because people were really really trying this one also continues once my mom returned home in the evening with a bag full of shortage products coffee beans canned beans and other things she's taking things out of the bag laughing after work she'd gone through Riga's central supermarket the Riga Army Economical Market, the first supermarket in Riga. I'm pretty sure I mentioned that somewhere around episode 3. So, she was going through Riga Central Supermarket, seeking something for dinner, when suddenly a strong hand had gripped her by the arm, and an unfamiliar woman said, Honorable artist, I know you. I know Elza Radzanya too. Once during an excursion, we went to pee in the bushes together. Why are you here? Are you looking for something? What do you need? The storage is quite empty already, but we'll find something. We can't let you out of the store empty-handed. We love our artists very much. What then? Coffee? Bulgarian pickles? She'd been confused, but soon realized she'd been mixed up with her sister, an actress of the National Theater. They both are very similar and often got mixed up. This is the only instance I know of when their similarity has been selfishly... But it shows that a certain part of population did have its advantages. So yeah, if you were a Kardashian and the Soviet era, I guess you would get all the sausage too. 
or Karelyov, then you would have to sit in a prison camp. So, it's kind of weird. Number eight. I remember that you had to get in a queue at 4 a.m. for milk and sausage. Grandmother went to take a place in the queue and we stayed on the lookout for one to join in so we could buy more rations. Usually it was after school. That is, Grandma stood in the queue for half a day at least twice a week. The greatest disappointment was when the sausage ran out right before our turn. All this standing for naught. That week spent without sausage. But the milk store lady was driving around in the Volga. Volga was a really high-class car in the Soviet Union. It was like the luxury, luxury end. Volga were essentially the Mercedes-Benz of, of the car world of the Soviet Union at that time. The common people, those who actually had cars, were happy to ride their Zhiguli or their Zaporozhets, which were much, much worse cars than the said Volgas. So, this milk store lady was driving around in a Volga. She had saved up some money from diluting sour cream. Oh, a dilution of sour cream. Yeah, that actually happened because, uh, for example, the store got their sour cream and other milk products, but it was mostly done with sour cream. They got their products in these huge metal cans. And this is my commentary here, if you didn't notice. So they got the store in there, they got the, the sour cream in the store in these huge metal cans, which are like 10, 15 liter cans. So if you worked around in the milk store, then you would just take a liter or a liter and a half off from each of those cans and just power some milk or some water in and just mix it up. So the the sour cream became less of a sour cream. It was basically a mix. And you could just either give the sour cream, which at that point was a deficit or uh, and a shortage to your friends or family for some benefits or you could just sell it under the counter like hey we have this undiluted sour cream for like real money you could do a lot of things with it and that was one of the ways how uh, the food industry stole from the government Uh, i explained how the other industries did it elsewhere but in the previous episodes but yeah this diluting sour cream and diluting other products just the selling in batches that was an everyday occurrence so continuing on once Grandmother had hunted down a piece of cheese, because cheese was also rare. When she unwrapped the wrapping paper, because everything was wrapped in these papers and old newspapers, and there were no plastic bags. Well, almost no plastic bags, but mostly everything was just wrapped in paper. When she unwrapped the wrapping paper at home on the corner of the paper, she found a note in Russian for the other milk lady. The note said, don't dilute the sour cream. I already did it. Because, of, of course, they worked in teams so that no one would be giving out anyone else there and they shared their profits. Because if you get about, like, one of these huge cans a week, then you can manage to gather up some profits over time. Continuing with the story. And also, I remember the huge queues for ice creams. Our town had a cafe that had it delivered every now and then. Plombeers, plain vanilla, or vasma, which is lemon. If I got through the queue and got vasma... All my little child's dreams had come true. It was utter bliss. On the days the cafe received ice cream, they also made ice cream cocktails. The one with thick plum juice was the, th- was the tastiest. On the street in Riga, I saw people eating Paul's, which is another one vanilla ice cream, in chocolate glaze on a stick. I almost choked in amazement. I mistook it for a large candy. A huge candy. But when I found out that it was ice cream, my wonder had no bounds. Neither had we any connections, so I didn't get to eat Paul's during the Soviet time. <laughs> like Scrat and his acorn. And that's coming from the original poster here. However, Mom's cousin was working in the central market. 
Nowadays, we go to the market because it's cheaper there. But back then, everything was insanely expensive at the market. You could get smoked chicken or meat rolls or grapes and melons from Caucasus, pomegranates. Only the prices were astronomical because they were sort of imported goods and there there were like these guys who just came from the ships and just unloaded some stuff. It was semi-black, kind of a grayish market area. Anyhow, we went there to our relative to get under-the-counter sausages without a queue, fresh and as many kilos as needed, not as decreed. My mother studied in Leningrad, which is St. Petersburg now, and once she bought the 8th World Wonder from there, for bananas. Imagine that, guys, for bananas. That was the only time as far as I remember. Tangerines for Christmas happened every now and again, but other exotic fruits appeared only with the arrival of the rotten capitalism, at which point I was already a student myself. We had the standing cues for fairy tale books as well, by the way. Of that era's classic staple foods, I remember the hot sausages with canned green peas and a half a slice of a brick, so-called brick, a rye bread that you could procure at the Riga train station. Other things were eggs with mayonnaise, courgette caviar, which is essentially canned minced zucchini in a tomato sauce, canned fish, uh, sprats, those little tiny fishes, in tomato sauce, which we mashed with a fork at home, add chopped onion and sour cream, and then spread them on white bread. Sometime shortly, before the collapse of the USSR, there were canned sprats in wine. They were marinated in red wine. I absolutely enjoyed them. Mom always bought them for me whenever they were available. Then I felt pampered. Oh, and the legendary kvass from the tanks. And lemonade vending machines. And malt beverage. For some reason, beer for men and malt beverage for women and children could be bought in kiosks of public baths. And for speaking lemonade, my parents bought Baikal and Tarhun from their trip through Russia. What is currently offered in our stores under these names doesn't stand close to its Soviet time taste. Wow, well, um, I want to add some comments here, especially about the public baths. Public baths are pretty big here in Latvia. Well, they're more like saunas. Um, yeah, but for the translation, it wasn't done by me this time, because I'm a bit overworked, as I, I run a day job, and I'm doing this this show, and I'll be doing lesser Bonapartes as well. So I asked for some help, so huge help, go, huge thank you goes to Laura, which is the wife of my little brother Charlie. Anyway, uh, these public baths are saunas, and that's a very Latvian tradition. We have public saunas everywhere here. And when in the places where we don't have them, the people are actually quite agitated about this. And if you own some real estate, like an actual private home somewhere, because people tend to own those now and then, not all of them because we're not that rich, but if you own a, a house for yourself or you live in, then unlike in America where I've heard that you meticulously take care of your lawn and you do all these barbecues, over here the same spot is filled by building the most expensive, coolest, and amazing bath in your backyard. Every private home just needs to have a bath in this, like, bath sauna in this backyard. Because saunas are really, really big. They were big in the Soviet time, and we use these uh, Finnish-type saunas here. And they're still extremely huge here. 
And if you ever visit Latvia, hey, if you're interested, then I can I can probably even take you to one because they're like literally everywhere. And about Baikal and Tarhun, well, Baikal is made from... Oh, I am actually forgetting the name. Uh, it's made from something like pine, just smaller, with some berries on it. And it tastes kind of like Coca-Cola and it's black, but it has this... Uh, Drinking soda with a lot of sugar aftertaste. And Tarhun is a green drink. It's sort of aloe vera-ish. It's not minty at all, and I don't like it very much. But apparently, well, I haven't drunk them in the Soviet era, so I wouldn't know. But Baikal is pretty good. I would recommend that one if you would be able to procure it somehow. I'm sure some places, some countries in the world do sell something of that sort. And about the, the public baths actually selling all these all these things. Yeah, they also sold vodka in them now and then. And beer. Even though about even though he spoke about all this commun- communistic morale, yeah, you have to kind of keep the spirits off of the people. So the public saunas were a popular place where people would just go with their friends after their work and just hang out with each other, socialize and just spend some time together like these days we would go to a pub because public saunas and saunas in general aren't considered the best place for to be drinking vodka. The cold beer now, now that's a whole another thing. But not you can't see that much vodka in in those places, and neither can you see all this, all these malt beverages there. Anyway, story number nine, and we're getting close to the end here. And I'm um, sorry about all this chaoticness that is going on here. But I just thought that this is the most personal, first-hand account experience that I could give to you guys. So I hope you like it. Anyways, story number nine. Yes, there were cues for food. My personal record is four hours for pineapples. They were giving out two per person. But also, I remember the fashion. It was very fine if you managed to get a bag with a Marlboro inscription. The plastic bag for groceries. Then you used it carefully for a long time and didn't put anything heavy in it to not to tear it. Only those whose fathers were sailors had jeans. Grain is in stores, but there were many women who tried to make clothes for themselves by sewing and knitting. They paid a lot for auto catalogs or boredom magazines and then copied the patterns. Yeah, now, this is an interesting story because all these handiworks, home economics uh, is really big in Latvia still. So we like to make our own stuff. And it kind of makes sense, because everything you had in the store was of poor quality, so it was just much better. You could really make better stuff yourself if you knew what you were doing. Oh, and by the way, Alice is studying to become a home economics and English language teacher. And she really likes knitting. but So, so she's kind of keeping the tradition alive. But at that time, it was kind of a necessity. You bought these auto catalogs or burden magazines for a huge amount of money. And then you kind of copied the patterns. You copied the patterns and you distributed them for a bit smaller amount also. But that was the way how you could actually get something, like get something cool, not wear something like anyone else has. Knitting patterns, sewing templates, all of that stuff. It was big. And about the plastic bags, I think I've told you about the plastic bags, but really we didn't even care what sort of company was on the plastic bag. What's, what was the what was the most important part was that it had something on it, something Western, something cool, like Marlboro with its Marlboro man back then. And you really kind of were the cool dude in the town if you had such a bag. 
and you saved it and you cherished it. You used it repeatedly, and I've seen that people actually washed them too. Also, about the jeans, it's not that only those whose fathers were sailors had jeans. No, it's just that they were really expensive and could be gotten in the black market as well. But apparently this person hasn't visited the black market that much. Although she kind of had to because of Otto and Bordeaux magazines. Then again, you could get them legally as well. It wasn't that terribly bad. But of course, of course, they were very rare. Huh. With that said, you know what? We kind of are at the end of the show this time. I've gathered a lot of entertaining information about entertainment in the USSR and chess, which I promised, and quite a lot of other issues. But all of this information just proved too much to handle in this single episode, because I really wanted to bring you in into the spirit of Soviet everyday life by bringing you all these accounts. I hope you liked this. I hope you didn't hate me for this format. But hey... It's going to be out at the end of May, like our next show, and we're continuing all that we're doing here. It's apparently, next one's going to be the special about, unlike I planned, next one's going to be a special about entertainment and chess and childhood and all these cool things which I promised to be in this episode. But all this food and cues and control of marriage just took over, sadly. Also, I will be trying to provide another riff on a Cold War movie for our Patreon and PayPal supporters, to whom we thank greatly, because your support is what keeps this show running. And I haven't received any, any feedback from the Rocky Four, which he commented, which was terribly silly, and we didn't take it seriously at all, and I wouldn't want to watch that movie again in my life. But, so, just so you know, if you hated the movie, please let us know. If you loved how we, what we did with the movie, please also let us know, because all we're doing here is just trying to make sure that you hear what we have to say, and hopefully that you're happy about it. Also, start listening to Lesser Bonapartes. I'll try to get those listeners as well, although this is a much more jaded show, but I think the information here is valuable. Now, Lesser Bonapartes, as you might know, is a comedy show, basically. It's a comedy history show. It's much less serious, although the fact-checking and everything there is rock solid. Don't get me wrong here. But... I think I will try, as Daniel has left the show and it's up to me to carry on the banner, I'll try to give it justice. They're they're much bigger than we are here. Then again, it's not about the size, it's about how cool we are, and I believe that we comrades are amongst the coolest, toughest people around there. Because you've decided to listen about how tough people manage through their lives. And sometimes it gets really tragic and isn't funny at all, because... As you have noticed, I haven't been very rich on the jokes in the, in the previous few episodes. It's going to get better, though. It's really going to get better, and I will do my best to do justice to lesser Bonapartes, and it'll be a chance for you to hear me on a weekly basis. Now, this show isn't going anywhere. Just that it's gonna keep, I'm going to keep doing this on this bi-weekly format that I've been doing this for now, but every week, because that show is weekly, I will riff with Glenn about whatever... And we're going to have a nice conversation about whatever subject we choose. So, you're all very well welcome and invited to join that show. Also, I'm sorry that this episode comes a bit late, and again, about the chaotic things, and about how this last part might have sounded a bit weird. But, I moved to Ludzim due to work reasons. Um, and that's 250 kilometers from Riga, 
So this show is not edited by Alice because I took the good microphone and our only good PC with me because it was mine and I had to do it. So this episode is edited by Andrew, who also edits a bunch of shows, including whatever Travis J. Doe is making because he's making like six shows and from Wittenberg to Westphalia and Lesser Bonapartes and all that stuff. So if the editing sounds weird, that's because of Andrew. Blame Andrew. Actually, this is edited by Ryan from the Rumor Flies podcast. Sorry if this doesn't sound quite up to Alice or Andrew's standard for editing, but if it doesn't, you can still blame Andrew. Secondly, yeah, I moved into this apartment, and as you might have seen on Facebook or Twitter, the travel a traveling circus group just set up right outside of my window, and were blasting crazy techno music 24-7 for two days, and I couldn't get any recording done. And after I recorded everything and sent everything to Andrew... Turns out, from the last part, like 12 minutes were missing, so I had to re-record them, and it's almost 1am at this time. But yeah, I put a lot of effort in these episodes, and I hope you enjoyed them, and I experimented the formats, of course. But you know what? Let's see how this goes. Let's let's see how I do with lesser bottom parts, and I'll try to make the eastern border as great as possible. Eastern border shall never be abandoned, guys. This home... Home is where the soul is. Do свидания, товарищ. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.